This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The pursuit for food has taken us into the wilderness, across rivers, and atop mountains. These journeys have connected us to the wild. It is this connection that allows us to experience the wild places this world has to offer in search for both wild game and adventure. This is my adventure for food. Uh, I'd always wanted to uh, road trip a turkey hunt, uh, but in 2014 at the time, I was a father to two toddlers, I was a new homeowner, I was servicing student loans still, unbelievably, and I was priced out of any professional operation that was going to do any turkey guiding. Uh, but I did, I was fortunate enough that I traveled for work and eventually I'd accumulated enough reward miles to actually go somewhere. And coincidentally, I had a lifelong friend that I've known since I was four and he was living right in the heart of Miriam's Turkey country in Southeast British Columbia. So in February, 2014, he and I locked in a plan for a DIY Miriam's Turkey hunt for early May of that year. So my friend was working in public lands management and conservation, and he had deer hunted a lot of that area, and he hunted it frequently. So he knew the country, uh, but he had never turkey hunted before. Uh, he was completely green to the, to the sport. Uh, and I was a decent enough turkey hunter, uh, but I'm a flatland hunter. You know, I've spent all my life chasing uh, deer and turkeys and, par and grouse and rabbits and, and waterfowl you know, in hardwoods and cedar swamps and marshes in central Ontario. And that's a far cry from what the Purcell mountain range had in store for me on this trip. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, it was, I recall that it was a rainy sort of early May afternoon and I'd taken two flights and traveled kind of two thirds of the way across Canada. And I found myself and my shotgun and a couple of turkey decoys, uh, boots on ground in, in Cranbrook, British Columbia. And, and my friend picked me up at the airport and right away he just said, are you ready to go? And we went straight into the hills for an afternoon hunt. It was about 1.30 in the afternoon when I landed and he's, you know, we had some time. 
So we went and we had three days. We had three days to, to make this work and we were completely, completely uh, unaware of how to make it happen other than the fact that we were going to hunt hard. Uh, so I won't bore you guys with, with like all three days of hunting, but suffice it to say, like we, we put our noses to the grindstone and we hunted hard. And those hunts, they, they ran kind of the gamut from very traditional early morning hunts on roost areas where we'd seen birds, uh, pre- my, my partner had seen birds earlier in the season. Uh, we did some very traditional sort of high country western style glassing. We'd just get up on a high spot and glass, uh, you know, open open meadows or areas looking for, for turkeys. Uh, we did a lot of running and gunning through you know pine stands and, and mountain meadows and, and and cutting across country uh, and that whole time like I just was stunned you know again I we were up and down hills and, and gullies and mountains and it was all the two things that struck me was it was just all very accessible public land everywhere we went uh, it was it was very available and and the other thing is if you're from Ontario and you've never been to British Columbia you know that is just an absolute stunning place to go uh the stereotype is always about vancouver and on the coast in canada where you've got the ocean and the mountains but for me you know as, a, as an outdoorsman as a hunter i always wanted to be in that interior that that in the mountains uh in the ponderosa pine in that area and in just the vistas were amazing the, the mountains for maybe a local i sound like I'm, I'm gushing but it was absolutely incredible for for me and the other thing that i was floored by was the wildlife like there's a saying that uh that area of british columbia southeast is is kind of the serengeti of, of canada and, it, and it, in terms of the, the diversity and that's what i was floored by like we encountered wild sheep elk coyotes more white-tailed deer than i'd ever seen in my life up to that point just massive groups of white-tailed deer in the spring um you know, the sheep that we encountered, we were on a mountain road and the sheep went by 40 yards from us like they didn't even care. Uh, we had a grizzly bear cross our tracks. We had long been gone, but we were tracking out and a grizzly bear had walked across our boot prints when we were coming in. So we never encountered that grizz, but that's, you know, that makes you makes you hold your gun a little tighter when all you've got is a, is a bunch of lead number sixes. Um, we found when we were walking along, we came across a half-buried cougar kill. Again, after the cougar had long gone, most of it was eaten, but you'd see where the cougar had, had pulled all the, the, the ground debris up onto this, this elk carcass. Uh, and again, this is stuff that we don't get in Ontario. Um, one thing we do get in Ontario, though, that we did find was we had a big haul of black morels. We found a whole bunch of black morels. We were foraging when we were out there. And that was all great, but you know, aside from, from, I think, one really distant gobble one day that never showed any interest in us, and a single hen that I think we bumped into a next county one afternoon, we were just getting shut out. We were not having any luck getting turkeys interested in us. And 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 the thing that made this interesting was it was the first time, well, there was a lot of things that made it interesting, but this was the first time in my life <clears throat> that I ever felt desperation or pressure. You know, previously in all my experiences there was always going to be another hunt there's going to be another day to hunt docks there's going to be another week to hunt deer there's going to be another chance this was three days in, in a place that we were intentionally making a trip out of it was a special thing and and i'd never felt that before but it was weird to be kind of battling unfamiliar country and and birds that weren't cooperating or didn't even sometimes appear to exist and the whole time the clock was ticking 
I very visibly remember like checking my watch and, and suddenly, oh my God, that's two hours we've been working this area and nothing. And that's two hours less than we have. And it was very real. And I'd never experienced that before. And I can't say I liked it then. Now, in retrospect, I think it's interesting. But at the time, you know, we were having a good time. And I was, like I said, relishing the scenery and the diversity of wildlife and, and, and just the weather held. It was great, you know, almost the whole time we were there. Uh, and it was some gnarly country. But in the back of my mind, I was frustrated. You know, I felt under-equipped and ill-prepared. And, and worst of all, if anyone's ever done anything even remotely high country hunting, you know, my, my feet were getting really sore. We were putting on miles and miles and miles and, and, you know, you just, every little, you're feeling every little bump and bump and, uh, and ache and pain by the end of the second day going up and down some of that country. So on the last day we decided we were going to make a real run of it. We got up at three fifteen in the morning. We had a bit of a drive to get to where we were going. And, uh, our intent was to be up and in a good listening spot well before daylight. So that, you know, if, if we could locate a bird, even at a real distance, we could, we could move to it. Uh, so we got up and we were, we got up, uh, we got to the spot around 4.30 and, and we, we uh, hiked up. It was a bit of a, a hill. I wouldn't call it a mountain, but it was, it was not, it was bigger than a ridge. And, and about halfway up, we found a little bench that we could stand on. And we were on a logging trail with kind of trees around us on this bench. And uh, we'd hunted it the previous afternoon. It's actually where we bumped that hen out of and we let it, the woods get really quiet around us. We just kind of got in there, shut off our headlamps, got quiet and, and just let the woods kind of be. And uh, again, that's another moment from that trip that was just incredible where, you know, you feel this, this, the, the vastness of that wilderness when you're just in it quietly. Um, so after a while though, I couldn't take it any longer. So it was cold. I remember there was a frost that morning eventually eventually came on but just it sort of got half lit in the dawn i I pulled out an owl call and i don't you know i I i'm not subtle with it i'm pretty loud and i just let it rip i ripped out a big long barred owl call and i was positive 100 percent positive that i heard a a, a gobbler answer back but the guy i was with i said hey did, did you hear that and he didn't he shook his head he didn't hear it and I started to question my own sanity at that point because I was certain I'd heard it. Um, but then just a few seconds after that, uh, a coyote kind of yipped and barked in the distance and the bird sounded off again. And this is another moment from that trip. My friend's eyes met mine and I could tell in his eyes that he'd heard it that time. You know, he just had that look that, oh, there it is. And that might have been the first time in his life. I'd have to ask him, but I don't think prior to that day he'd heard a wild turkey sound off in the pre-dawn like that and and if you've ever hunted turkeys that is a moment that is like that's part of the reason i do it is to hear him hear a turkey get up and yell at the sun is is really really cool so hopefully he remembers it as clearly as i do uh, but anyhow we backtracked down with kind of hand signals and half whispers we came up with a quick plan and we backtracked down a bit to a flat open spot that we knew was below us and we put the decoys out and we got set up and uh, I just started yelping on my box call. First quiet and then a little louder, a little louder. And the tom was answering. And before long, um, you heard his gobble change. When they hit the ground, if you've ever hunted turkeys, when they hit the ground, the sound of their gobble changes. They're not up high anymore. It's kind of got to go through the trees and stuff. And I knew he was on the ground. And eventually he was coming our way. And at one point I saw him just going between trees, 
about 80 yards, 70 yards out. And I thought, okay, well, we, we got it. We got a, we got an opportunity here. And then, uh, you know, as fate would have it, uh, a group of white-tailed deer, I think it was four or five deer, kind of came walking through that flat open area. And, and they did not like our setup one bit. They stomped and they snorted at the decoys and they bounded around. And, and I think they probably didn't like the look of the camel blobs hunkered under the trees that probably didn't smell too good to them. And, and eventually the, the, the turkey was still gobbling, but he was, he was starting to just slowly move off. I don't think he liked hearing the deer get in there and snorting and, and making noise. And never in my life, I'd spent my whole life before that hunting deer and hunting deer and hoping to get close to deer. And I just hated them more than any animal in the world at that moment. I was just, they could have gone extinct in a heartbeat in that moment, and I wouldn't have felt so bad about it. Uh, but we decided we were going to circle ahead of that bird. My partner, buddy, knew where he was going. Uh, so we got into a gully on the other side of a road that was kind of to our advantage, where we could stand up and move without having to crouch and crawl and move along. And we tried to get ahead of where we thought they were going. And at one point, I could hear them scratching in the leaves and then pine needles kind of above us when we were in this gully. So I dropped my vest and I kind of belly crawled up to the lip with my gun kind of poking over the edge and uh, no shot presented itself. And the birds, again, they kind of just moved away slowly. They weren't spooked, but they were cautious and they didn't, they didn't putt or run, but we were getting a little frustrated. Uh, and, and we had one more ace up our sleeve. So my, my buddy kind of called me back down and he said, if we get on the road, we can go in a big circle to above where they were going. There was another bench up a bit of a climb where he figured they were going kind of near a pond and into some open spots, kind of scattered, scattered pine trees and some blowdowns, but fairly open. So we, we hustled up that, that, that little bit of a hill and got into this bench again and set down the decoys and, and sat against our trees. And again, we just let things get quiet. And that's the one thing I've, I've learned. The one thing turkey hunting taught me among a lot of things is it just sometimes pays after you make a move or after you bust a turkey or after you make a mistake, just stop and let everything get quiet and let things get back to normal before you start calling or moving again. So we did that. We let it get nice and quiet. I think it was about 10 or 15 minutes. And I just absentmindedly scratched out seven or eight yelps on a slate call and a, and the, and a gobbler hammered. And he was in range when he hammered. He was probably inside of 50 yards. He was really close. It sounded like he was really nearby and he was, and then I yelped again and he cut me off and he was closer. He was coming up this hill towards us onto this bench. And uh, I was about as shook up as I've ever been hunting turkeys at that point because it just felt like a redemption opportunity. And, uh, and it was a game on and we were ready to go. So I got things kind of organized. I dropped my calls. I had a mouth call in so I didn't have to move my hands anymore. And I yelped a bit and he'd answer. He was closer. And then he went quiet. And, and when that happens, I usually think they're coming. They're not answering anymore. And eventually it felt like an eternity, but it might have just been five or ten minutes. I could hear again a turkey walking and then I could see his tail fan and he was kind of coming up this hill towards us and his, his, his fan was in strut, but he didn't have his head back. He had his head up. He was full, full periscope. So he was strutting, but he was looking. And I think what happened in just the years of thinking about it is as he was coming up the hill, he couldn't see our decoys and he couldn't see us. And he was searching for that head. And at that point I, I made a promise to myself. I wasn't going to call to him again because he didn't know where we were and him looking for me was what I wanted. And at one point, he went behind a tree that was, you know, wider than his body, but not wider than his fan. And I've got this image in my mind seared where there's just a tail fan corners sticking out of either side of this tree. And I told myself that if he 
he's going to step out of behind this tree, either left or right side. He's going to step out, and I can shoot him when he steps out. So when he's behind that tree, I put the gun up, and I had the gun held on the tree. And then he took two steps out to the right of the tree, and I just nudged the bead over, and I put it at the base of his neck, and I, and I squeezed the trigger off. And as soon as I shot, he just dropped out of sight because, again, he was kind of coming up a hill towards us. So I just remember pumping the gun. I shoot an 870, and I remember pumping the gun and putting the safety on all in one motion and popping up, and I ran up to him, well, down a hill, I guess, to him. And when I got to him, I don't even remember my feet touching the ground while I was running to him. Like, there was roots and blowdowns and pine needles and rocks, and I just – none of that is in my – memory at all just the adrenaline and the excitement and when i got to him he was stone dead he wasn't even flopping i'd hit him i'd actually put a few pellets through his fanned out tail which i hate to do but at that point i didn't really care uh and he wasn't didn't even flop and and i uh, we had that moment and if you've ever hunted with a with a person whether it's turkeys or deer you know after the shot i got there and I, my, my friend shouted did you get him and i let out that one thing that i think everybody says that he's down and he my friend cheered and he ran over and you know, it was this culmination of three days of just hard, hard work and clo- not even close calls. If it had been close calls, we could have called it a day. It was that there was no turkeys around. So, I mean, there was hugs and high fives and pictures. And then we did that thing that I think all hunters do and anglers, I think, do it too, is you tell the story of what just happened just seconds or minutes earlier. You know, well, I saw this. What did you do? And I could see this, but I couldn't see the turkey. And it was this really just this great moment. And, uh, and I remember the, I remember that the feelings were, it's a cliche to talk about these conflicting feelings and it's true. I mean, you're sad when a hunt is over because taking a life is a thing you're doing and it's, it, the moment has passed and, and there's all this buildup, but also there was relief and joy and, and you're proud of that work you put in. And we were proud that we were just a couple of green DIY guys that between us cobbled together a successful turkey hunt. And I just remember elation and exhaustion and a million other feelings that I can't articulate. Uh, but two things that I definitely will never forget is while we were tagging them, which was you know five or six minutes after we shot them, my hands were still trembling. They still sometimes shake when I tell this story. Like it was just so intense. And I also remember that I couldn't stop smiling. The whole walk down back to the truck, him over my shoulder, I was just grinning like a big idiot because it was, it was so fun. Um, but we took that bird back to my friend's garage and uh, it was about I think it was about 10:30 in the morning at the time it was all said and done and we cleaned that bird and uh, you know we didn't have time I was flying out in about eight hours after that hunt ended and we didn't have time to kind of pluck them and roast them so we took the breasts out we took the legs out and uh, we grilled those turkey breasts fresh less than three hours after that bird had been shot and uh, you know I just remember again another great moment was sitting in the afternoon sunshine in a mountain town in British Columbia, sipping an ice cold apple cider, eating a turkey that we just shot and catching up on all those moments that two people that have known each other for at that point over 30 years, you know, that are often separated by, you know, 2000 miles that we, you know, it was just, it was just catching up. And, uh, you know, in six hours after that, I was 35,000 feet in the air chasing, chasing Dawn back to Ontario. And, uh, and that's the other thing that was really cool about that trip was that juxtaposition. And I think that's the downside. If you kill, if you feel your tag on your last day, you know, there's, there's that elation and there's that joy and you did it. You achieved your goal, but also it's immediately like, Oh, you got to pack your bag and you got to win. Is my flight on time? Am I checked in? There's all those logistics. And that is a very jarring 
juxtaposition I felt. I noticed that, and I still notice it when I tell this story. You know, we didn't have as much time as I felt we needed to kind of savor that moment. Uh, but it was an incredible hunt. And just as a footnote to that, you know, less than a week later with my family around me now, so instead of my lifelong friends, but, you know, with my cousin and my brother, I was lucky enough to harvest an eastern wild turkey not far from my family's farm on the Bruce Peninsula in Ontario. And it wasn't my intention, but I, I guess unintentionally, intentionally, I completed a single season Canadian wild turkey slam. So that's a Miriam's and an Eastern. Uh, and I did a less than seven days apart and it was, it was really cool. Uh, and now I've got my sight, sight set maybe on a, on an Osceola and a Rio Grande, maybe do that real, that real uh, full grand slam. But, uh, but that's another adventure for another time. And, and this was, uh, this was my, Adventure for Food in British Columbia. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night, floats a duck camp. Alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. From the Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest, me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.